Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. I'm joined today by the full crew. We are live on this fine Thursday on Hoppin' and Twitter Spaces. And Marianne and Natasha, there is a couple things that we have to get to, about 473. So the next 30 minutes should be absolutely relaxed, I think. (laughs) Yes. Maybe a little bit. We'll see. We'll see. We have funding rounds, Natasha. Marianne, we got breaking news. We got to talk about Substack. It's going to be a a pretty packed episode. I think let's go ahead and start with the most important news that's going on, which is that after a a super long tenure, Natasha, Sheryl Sandberg is stepping down as COO of Facebook, ending essentially what feels like a leadership duopoly atop the uh, world's largest social network. Oh my God. Yeah. This is the kind of headline that you rarely expect to see. Maybe given the amount of people that have been leaving Meta from the executive suite over the past year, we could have somewhat expected it. But someone like Sheryl Sandberg is so synonymous with Meta, formerly known as Facebook at this point, that I was shocked to see this. And obviously she's historic for so many reasons. She became the board's first female member when she joined in 2012, steered the company through IPO, growth, controversy. And you kind of just said she's Zuckerberg's second hand in command. And so for her to depart and soon be replaced by someone who's going to be less public facing, to me, just signals a whole new era of meta. Yeah, Marianne, mm-hmm. the important thing to me here is I think she is synonymous with Facebook, but I don't think she will be synonymous with Meta because it feels like a new chapter in the company and right. therefore a new chapter in the leadership. And maybe the metaverse wasn't her jam. I mean, it's quite possible. There's been a lot of other things I think that may have led up to this, some tension between her and her brother over some PR blunders she's had over the past couple of years, just things like um, some inappropriate things. Like, for example, with her ex-boyfriend trying to keep some of his actions hush-hush. You know, she's she's had yeah. some negative headlines. But yeah, I mean, this is a new chapter for Meta in general as a company. Cheryl's had a pretty crucial role in leading Facebook forward. It seems like the new COO will not have as much power as she did. So I think that's very much intentional on Mark's part. She had a a lot of kind of accumulated soft power because don't forget that, you know, Mark controls the company via voting rights. And so he is the monarch. But I think Cheryl, just given her long tenure as kind of a co-pilot's not the right word, but like the lengthy Mm co-leader, there you go, Mm -hmm. um, had accumulated to herself a lot of authority and responsibility. And I don't think you can replicate that. You can't command Z, you can command V that, you know? No. 100%. I want to throw to Casey Newton's piece, who writes The Platformer, about Cheryl Sandberg stepping down because I think he did a really good job summing up her impact, but also in a way his surprise that it took her this long to leave because her tenure had Mm. been so colorful, but also toward the end, it felt like she was staying on longer than maybe she even needed to or that her job description didn't match how massive her title was. So I think that to me, that just made me think like, I wonder where Cheryl's going next because so many of these meta executives have left to start crypto companies or start funds or all those things. So her next move is going to be obviously widely covered on TC and this pod, whatever it happens. There's only one possibility, Marianne. Obviously, she's the newest general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. (laughs) Because everyone else is oh taking on that gosh. job, so why not why not Cheryl? I mean, I, I don't doubt anything these days. Here's here's the thing. How long do you really want to be number two to a monarch? And two, 10 years sounds like 10 year to me, and it's been longer than that. So a change to the guard, <laughs> not an enormous surprise. All right, let's put that aside. We'll have more guys when more stuff comes out. But that's the key kind of breaking headline before the show. And now, deals of the week. Marianne, finally, finally, after so long, we are bringing BNPL back to the pod because we have neglected it for like 18 minutes. Yeah, right. Buy Now, Pay Later, or BNPL, made headlines again this week when a firm announced that it was teaming up with Stripe 
payments giant. And what this means is that a firm's buy now, pay later technology will now be made available to Stripe's customers. So that means that they will be able to pay for things in installments, whereas before they were not able to do so. This is a big deal in that Stripe has millions of customers. So this really opens up a huge window for a firm to make more money, let's put it bluntly. And then I guess for Stripe, it's a big deal because it's it's able to, A, better retain customers and attract new ones because it can now offer this buy now, pay later at checkout. Does a firm have a deal with Stripe exclusively or can Stripe slash a firm work with anyone who's competing with each other? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, they never use the word exclusive, but I think it's pretty much understood that it, once you team up with one buy now, pay later provider, you don't team up with another, yeah, I guess. Yeah, okay, but vice versa, maybe <laughs> yeah. not. I, the reason I was asking was I was kind of like, this took a long time to happen, right? Mm-hmm, this feels like mm-hmm. such a layup. And so I wonder if there was like a discount or something behind the scenes that made it finally work. I don't know, maybe it was politics. Yeah, I would love to know behind the scenes what led up to this. I know that the whole space in general has been kind of, we've had mixed stuff happening. You know, Klarna had to, we're talking about cutting valuation by a third, right? It was valued at $45 right. billion dollars last year had to do some layoffs. And then a firm actually had a good fiscal third quarter, like revenue was way up. So there's a lot going on, which I'm going to unpack, by the way, on the TechCrunch podcast this week, if you want to hear more details on that. Hell yeah. So if you want long form Marianne, if you're not getting enough as a from equity, there's more coming on the, the TechCrunch podcast, which is focused on individual writers and the staff. It's quite a lot of fun. Brand new. Just out. Natasha, to your point, I had the same question. And so I looked up before the show, a different BNPL support inside of Ooh. Stripe. And they do have support for kind of after paying, clear paying Klarna and Affirm. But my read of what Marianne put together in the situation is that it's a, a tighter integration. And so it's now much easier yeah. to do kind of BNPL via Stripe without having to have separate customer accounts and so forth. So my read is a tighter integration and more of a first party or tier one experience. More seamless as ah, that's PR the word speak I would say. <laughs> yeah. I, I, totally. I think the partnership... Yeah. I think any other like month even, I would just read the partnership and be like, oh, smart. But this time I'm like, but why? Or I guess not, but why, but but why now? I don't know. I'm sure we'll get more Stripe content as time goes on, Marianne. You've been so busy with the Stripe of X beat. Yeah. I'm sorry. Let's play a fun little game before we move on. Stripe was worth $95 billion in its last private round. There's been some reductions to that from Fidelity and so forth. But still, let's call it 80. All right. A firm per Google Finance as we talk, seven and a half. Whoa. So like- It was was eight and a half the other day. (laughs) uh, Well, I don't think things have been going that well in the old stock market. Mm. (laughs) Everything's a story these days. My gosh. But the the point is like, you know, Stripe could just buy a firm if they wanted to. They could even do kind of a hilarious reverse merger and use a firm as a SPAC, which would (laughs) be very funny. Well, you know, Square or Block acquired Afterpay. So it's certainly not a wild notion, Alex. Oh, by the way, I, I meant to look this up. But that that deal was mostly stock, right? I don't remember. I Be, think so. Yeah. Since that deal was announced, <laughs> the value yeah. of block stock has gone down, which effectively reprices the deal. I think commensurately with how we've seen BNPL startups themselves be repriced. There's actually some positive synergy there. Okay, and that's ironic. Spicy, definitely spicy. <laughs> Um, let's move on to something that's not spicy, but is instead a bit of a surprise. We have not <laughs> talked about maps on the show ever. I think. But back in the old days, mashups often involved maps, hence the publication Mashable. And it's back. Natasha, what's going on? Yeah, well, I will say this does feel a little spicy because as I joked on Twitter, a map 
startup raising in this economy feels like a feat in and of itself. And the co-founders laughed along at that. But I wrote this week about Felt raising 15 million and it's built by John Durek and Sam Hashimi. And both of them are kind of believing that maps are going to be the next big medium for people to express impact, but more lucratively, maybe that enterprises are going to be using their product long-term, similar to how Notion and Figma are used to express kind of different thoughts specifically around climate because they have Mm -hmm. a lot of data and features right now that can help people create maps to express how climate will show up in the world. So I was really excited to see something that felt like kind of like a moonshot get funded Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. More consumery. Marianne, did you get a chance to play with it? I did not get a chance to play with it. I think I was most curious, Natasha, maybe you can help me better understand like what is so unique about what they're doing compared to what else is out there in the world of maps? Yeah. So if we think about Google Maps, it's pretty hard to collaborate with other people that want to kind of tweak and add to a map. So I think the biggest differentiation that Felt has right now is they're adding a social layer, but they're also adding like a very data driven and fact checked high quality layer is what they're saying. So my view is like right now, maps, what we think of them are pretty static. We use them to get from point A to point B. And some of us, if we're good at using these apps, can like add like our favorites and kind of pinpoint some of our favorite locations on a map. But Felt wants it to be more like answering questions like, what are the chances that a hurricane will impact this area in this way? What flood risk do we have? Stuff like that. Does that answer that's your question? Yeah, I think I think that's super interesting. I mean, I admit I am not good at reading maps. Um, so I, I do think that's fascinating, though, that it's not just like, here's where this is and here's where that is, but like really providing some valuable information that could be very helpful for companies. Marianne, I'm also directionally <laughs> impaired, as they say. Yeah, I, I got a chance to sign up for Felt because I've known about the company because John Durek is part of the uh, Read Margins team. And so Margins is a great publication that if you care about startups, you probably already read it. So anyways, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So I did sign up. I did go through the onboarding process and it's cool. I think. Yeah. So I'm kind of I'm kind of on board with this. I don't know exactly what I'm going to use it for, but the idea of having a lot of layers that I can bring into a map and kind of, I hate the phrase, tell a story, but convey something was very exciting to me. Yeah. Actually, I want to like kind of hear more about the onboarding process in your words. Like that is really cool that one, the news other than them raising was that they're launching to public so we can finally use it and play around. But like what kind of stood out to you? Okay. So I'm going to get very nerdy for a second and then bring it right back to yes, the, the topic. Yes, exactly my hand. goal with that question. So <laughs> Okay. So I'm, I'm an enormous nerd for map-based video games. So I play a lot of Civilization. I play Crusader Kings. And so I spend a big chunk of my time literally just looking at maps and clicking around on them in a kind of gaming setting. So I was curious about, you know, how is it going to be to onboard to a map-based product that is not a game, but probably has some similarities? Pretty wrong about that. It's much more of a zoomed-in feel. And so the onboarding process made you do a bunch of tasks, a bit like a game onboarding process, like click here to add a pin, click here to bring in a layer, click here to scroll around. Here's how you draw on the map. And it's kind of like a scavenger hunt. I think it was around um, New York City. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was intuitive. I thought it was fun. And I wouldn't want to do it on a mobile device. But if you have a mouse and a keyboard, it's great. So hell yeah, felt. Definitely like the biggest challenge is kind of what you just said. It's like fun, interesting, and maybe as of right now, limited to desktop comfort. So will us three directionally impaired people (laughs) want to use this on a day-to-day basis similar to Notion and Figma? That's, I guess, the big bet of felt. Are Notion and Figma mobile friendly? I don't know. I don't know if the mobile I mean, friendly bit, but I do use like them. I mean, I use Notion, <laughs> no big deal, <laughs> but <laughs> I use it on 
desktop and it's uh, fine. I, I can't use the phrase that you use to describe yourself involving your notion usage on the <laughs> podcast, but I, I will note that it is becoming increasingly accepted amongst the Gen Z generation, the younger people out there, to have what we might consider enterprise software part of their personal stack. Oh yeah. And so I'm very curious to see if Felt will find some extra tailwinds just from that fact, frankly. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I know we need to probably move on, but oh, yeah. one of the things I'm most curious about is that like right now, is it geared toward consumers, but it plans to go after the enterprise later or is it both or, or what? Yeah, you know? first consumer, then enterprise, basically citing Notion as like an example of how that's worked in the past, which obviously helped investors get on board, but it's a good point. Interesting. All right, so I'm going to grab my deal and I'm going to talk about quick commerce, which is, look, I didn't think we were going to see any more capital for this particular sector. <laughs> Ever again. And yet here we are, uh, Indonesia based Astro just raised $60 million for 15 minute grocery delivery. There's somehow still capital for this. And the reason why I'm surprised guys is that not that I don't understand the consumer draw because who doesn't want two bottles of vodka and toothpaste brought to your house ASAP, but it's that the companies in the space that raised so much money last year have been going through layoffs and shutdowns. So, you know, Fridge No More shut down, Zap laid off 10% of its staff, Gorillas in Berlin cut 300 workers. I'm just reading my own notes here. Avo slash 500, Jiffy backed out of consumer, Getter cut 14% of its staff. So in that context, how shocking is it that Astro raised $60 million? I mean, I think that the difference here is that in Indonesia, this is not commonplace. So it's still very much a burgeoning sector, I guess. And and the need and demand is probably there. So I think if this company, yeah. if Astro can do it right, it could grow and be very, very successful. And maybe it can use these other companies as a model of what not to do when growing, like don't overhire or be careful with expansion or things like that. So I think it's, it can be very much market specific on, you know, the success rate, I guess, chances of success for specific companies too. And just digging into that, Marianne, I mean, essentially you're thinking about like country specific issues, like the regulatory climate, accessibility of, of gig-based labor versus other forms. And so it, right. it, it might vary. Yeah, for sure. And then, and not just that, I mean, just internet adoption and the, the populations that are were slow to this, you know, of course the pandemic forced a lot of people to get on board with it when they weren't before, like online shopping. But but I think, you know, here in the US it's just so common and mainstream that we forget sometimes that in other countries that it's not. Yeah. Yeah. This piece like you're kind of describing and made me think a lot about like artificial growth and just like the COVID pullback. So in the piece we talked about how like on demand delivery got this boost in Indonesia, but e-grocery penetration in the country still remains low and it's estimated to be, I think, 0.5% by 2022 compared to South Korea's 34% oh. in 2020. And so to me, it was like, okay, like did the artificial growth of demand during a pandemic just help the people that were, I guess, already aware of it kind right. of get those people to do it more or did it actually mm -hmm. change the overall wave of people that are doing it is my big thing. Mm -hmm. It's unfair to compare any country's penetration of a digital service to South Korea, one of the most digitally forward societies on the planet, you know, and maybe a, a better comp would be like Wyoming or something, <laughs> you know, like a state that's kind of like, yeah. you know, there, just doing its thing. And we'll talk more about states that are just doing their oh, thing there out go. there <laughs> later on in the show. Bit of a taste of foreshadowing there. <laughs> Anyways, I think this just goes to show, last little note that I know we have to move on, but like, we're not always right, is what this reminded me of. Because I would have bet you lunch that we were done seeing this type of round, and yet here it is. So it's a good reminder to me that my biases are uh, not always correct. Can I add one last little note? This also, speaking of being wrong, like YC basically a few weeks ago wrote to its founder saying that international 
traditional companies, asset heavy companies, low margin companies, hard tech and other companies with high burn and long time to revenue will the slowdown will have a disproportionate impact on them. This is the counter argument. And so I, I'm sure a lot of founders are taking this as a boost of energy, but it just shows that even this slowdown and black swan moment that is definitely happening in a lot of places isn't happening to everyone, at least right yeah, now. And it should be noted, yeah. there were quite a, a number of large US-based investors that participated in this round, right? I, I think Excel, was it Sequoia? Am I remembering correctly? I think Tiger was in this one, wasn't it? Maybe the yeah, last $5 Tiger. that Tiger had to invest. <laughs> Sequoia, Lightspeed. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. A, a murderer's row of, of names that we know, implying that you know the smart money is still quite active in the space. So QCommerce, still a thing. Now, let's drop the deals of the week and talk about some bigger things. Natasha, you have a story up on the site about a spinoff of a sort that we don't usually see, and we're quite excited about this one. Oh my gosh, yes. So this was like my, I guess yesterday when I logged on, or two days ago, I don't know what time it is. I saw a tweet that someone is starting a new venture fund, and that, <laughs> compared to all the doom and gloom, got my attention immediately. So Precursor Ventures' Sydney Thomas, who was actually the firm led by Charles Hudson, it was their first hire. And she just spun out to start her own venture firm, which she announced on Twitter. We have barely any details about it, such as yes. check size, name, or what she's targeting or what kind of fund she's raising. So the most exciting part to me about this move was just her decision to build and start a fund during this environment of all environments. And I think she had a good response when I talked about that because so many people have been warning me that emerging fund managers will struggle. And her response was, I think it's crazy to start a fund in any environment. And I haven't really paid attention to a lot of discussions because the early stage markets have zero correlation to the stock market more generally. So there's that for a counter argument. That kind of argument can be summarized as screw you, I'm doing it anyways, I think. And I'm here for Yeah, it. I mean, it's, it's really admirable that she's doing this, especially in this environment. I think it shows a lot of confidence and maybe not just her own capabilities as an investor, but in the early stage world as a whole. And I think one of the things I found really interesting about what she is thinking in terms of a thesis is that she really wants to back founders at the very early stage and keep on backing them, right? Like she doesn't want to just back them and then go away. Is that right, Natasha? Yeah, yeah. To me, hearing that usually, I would be like, yeah, doesn't everyone do that? But she kind of went on the record to say that she thinks a lot of the promise of multi-stage funds, aka the ones that will a startup can come to for their seed through like Series F, is not playing out as planned because multi-stage firms will outsource their pre-seed or seed investments. And then those same startups, when they come back to partners for their Series A or later stage rounds, those partners don't really know them and they kind of have to repitch all over again. And so she's like, it's actually a huge gap right now in the market to have your investor stay with you from pre-seed to seed and kind of mm -hmm. not lose you. So I think that will be like yeah. the biggest differentiation. And it taught me a lot about, I don't know, my preconceived notions on how Tiger and other firms were acting. <laughs> Right. So I was really struck by this note about how multi-stage funds aren't living up to their potential. Because if you go back a year, maybe a year and a half, and think back to when everyone was launching a SPAC to take other companies public, we were talking about how you know Firm X or Firm Y could now do seed through public markets. And wouldn't it be great if you were an investor to raise money from the same firm all the way through and not worry about going out there and finding new sources of capital and blah, 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 blah. Soup to nuts capital. Right. Yeah, well, SPACs are kaput, seeds in trouble, and doesn't seem to have worked out, shockingly yeah. enough. Who would have thought? Yeah. I, it's making me challenge my preconceived notions. And yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of just like being critical of myself right now. But it's it's just making me think a lot about like, just because it sounds like a good idea doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. Well, I think it would work great if you had fewer partners and didn't break up stage by stage investing by tranche, right? So if you think about like Bessemer, they have an early stage team, they have a growth team, 
they're distinct and they're supposed to be. But if you're going to tell people that we're one firm that will take you from, you know, pre-seed to IPO or to a SPAC, whatever, I think you have to have a bit more consistency in the people making the decisions. And that's tough because VCs specialize based on stage, usually. And so you're going to have to do a handoff from the pre-seed to the seed team, seed to the early stage, early stage to the late stage, late to the growth. And then essentially it's just six different firms kind of stacked up like a really shitty layer cake. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that's just counter of the way it should be. I mean, if I just put myself in the shoes of a founder and if I have an investor who believes in me in a very early stage is willing to make a bet on me at that very early stage and then like goes away soon after it just I mean that's that doesn't make sense to me it's like you know you want someone who if they believe in you that much to invest in you at that early of a stage you would expect that they want to be there you know for the ride to help you grow watch you grow all that good stuff so I don't know maybe it's the idealist in me but like I feel like if you're going to back a company at such an early stage that you want to stick with them totally yeah I mean, th- we talk about signaling risk a lot, Natasha. Yeah, yeah. And Becca from your team just had a really interesting piece right now about how pro rata is another one of those venture capital assumptions that are being questioned right now. And so I feel like I haven't read the entire piece yet, but plugging that as an interesting follow-up for people who are interested in this part of the conversation, a lot mm-hmm. of things that are being assumed are kind of feeling tension. Before that tension used to be, well, everyone just wants more. And now it's like, well, do we want more? Should we keep investing? I feel like there's a lot of things that are just like suddenly being up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dead on. And so just to add a little extra to that, because it's a topic that I'm super curious about, pro rata rights essentially allow an early stage investor to defend their percentage stake in a company as it raises more money. And so it gives them the theoretical right to buy more stock at the next price in the next round. So let's say you own 5% at seed, you can defend that at the series A, B, C, and so forth. But what happened was, as late stage money became more and more aggressive, early investors were essentially told, your pro rata rights are meaningless. And that was a bummer because a lot of these early stage investors depended on pro rata as a way to mm-hmm, defend mm-hmm. essentially their, their winners. Yeah. It was their way to kind of double, triple, quadruple down. And now that there's less money and the late stage is less busy, people are now saying, please fill your pro rata rights. In fact, please, please, please do it. And so we've seen a complete inversion once again. And we're trying to figure out what's going on, Marianne. Yeah. And it's, it's tough because things are changing so what fast. What a reversal. What a reversal. You know what's not reversing though? Email. We still use it, sadly. Well, I don't, but everyone else does. <laughs> I made a joke earlier how like I was excited to cover felt because it's not trying to disrupt email. Like that's not the medium that they've chosen. But here we are talking about it anyways. <laughs> What's going on, I'm, Alex? <laughs> I, I have this every single night. I'm like, I'm going to plug in the iPad. I'm going to wake up in the morning. And when I'm drinking coffee with the dogs, I'm going to check email. And then I'm going to go to my office and sit down and do some work. And then every morning I read a novel instead. <laughs> I ignore email. and then the That's sounds like great uh. work-life balance. And I know you don't have a good work-life balance, but it sounds like I'm, I'm glad you're creating space for you in the morning. Yeah, I, I'm same, trying to. Same. Anyways, the point is I'm bad at email, but many people are still betting on email, one of which is Substack. And there's been some news from the world. Of, sorry, that, it was way too long of a segue into the topic. We just ended up there. Substack tried to raise, according to some reporting from around the internets, and it turns out that the company will not raise the Series C right now. And according to the reporting that we heard, essentially the company was looking to raise between 75 and 100 million at a 750 to $1 billion valuation via the New York Times. Shout out to them for getting this set of data. And my question for you two is, why do they need $100 million? Well, or why would they want I mean, $100 million? Their revenue last year was, was it $9 million? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's shockingly low, I think, for oh, the hype my God. around Substack. 
Yeah. Sorry. I just feel like we're all just like, yeah. Um, no, the, the 9 million revenue at a $1 billion valuation to me is a insane disconnect. But sure, we're used to insane disconnects. I think the craziest question, like you already said, Alex, is like, what are they spending money on? It does not seem like a resources heavy business unless they're paying a lot to get exclusive rights with writers or I don't know. It's like so confusing to me. We're at a media company. We should know this answer. What is so I mean, they've, they've raised what? 80, is it 86 million? dollars so far? Something yeah. like that. Okay. I think their last round was 65 at a $675 million yes. post-money mm-hmm. valuation. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to point out that I totally empathize with your reactions to the fact that they were shooting for a roughly 100x trailing run rate metric. <laughs> Who wouldn't? But I mean, think about it. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I wish... TechCrunch Plus was valued at 1,000x revenue because then I could retire. <laughs> but uh, think about to where they were when they raised that Series B because they raised 65 at a 675 you know, a, a year ago when they didn't have 9 million revenue. So they probably had an even more aggressive revenue multiple back then, which means that Andreessen, who had led their Series A and B, valued the company at a price point that now seems unsustainable. And I'm curious why Andreessen isn't swooping in with more money because Andreessen, this is going to blow your mind, is not poor. <laughs> Andreessen, Andreessen startups have been having a moment with layoffs. I think Andreessen's, a lot of them are, they're backing big moonshots, buzzy startups that have raised a ton of money. And I just covered yesterday that Loom, which is Andreessen Horowitz backed, has laid off a number of its staff, I think 14% of its staff. And so I don't necessarily know if that's directly correlating to them not making extensions, but they might be getting more disciplined right now because a lot of those companies that have that stamp of approval are scaling back. Mm. I mean, also, I think just in general, right, last year, valuations were, were just nuts all around. You know, I think there was a ton of maybe unwarranted valuation setting going on yeah. last year. And so Definitely. this is in part why we're in this environment that we're we're in. I just want to point out the the, the danger of, this is going to sound a little overdramatic, but the danger of venture capital in certain areas. And, and here's why I say that. Substack has done some things really, really well. Substack's product as a writer, super great. I really like it. I have a couple different subjects that I've tinkered with. It's where I host my personal blog. I recently sent out a, an email blast to I mean, the people that subscribe to my personal blog, it's great. And they have a dead simple business model. They take 10%. Cool. Easy peasy if you charge. Hell yes. And then they went even further and said, hey, you know what we're going to do? Provide some legal backstops and some other things that you probably can't really buy on your own. And so we'll bake that in. Amazing. Why does it need venture capital to do this? That's where I begin to kind of worry. Because if they're going to raise $100 million, they're probably going to have a much bigger, I don't know, purview, product set, whatever. It feels like they nailed the, this, this thing and now it has to become bigger somehow faster. And I, I don't know if it scales like that. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of that mm-hmm conversation we had a year and a half ago, which mm-hmm. is why, why does this company need so much damn money? How much would they raise at that point? Was it a hundred million? It was something yeah. around there. It was, it was a check size that we kind of sat around and we're like, that's an odd amount Right. Of money. And so, I don't know. I, I think Substack has a lot of fair critiques about censorship, free speech. A lot of those debates have happened and that's maybe not for this conversation right now, but maybe we're missing something yet again. Was th- Were they secretly creating another product that they need this money? Well, for? They, they launched an app, which is not cheap and their app's pretty slick. I downloaded it and somehow it's connected to my Apple watch. I don't know how that happened. And so now whenever someone publishes a Substack, my watch goes ding and scares the shit out oh, of me. I, yeah. So that's, so every time, every time stream and destroy publishes, I get zinged. It feels like punishment actually, but the company's also getting into podcasts and they have had the pro system where they pay people to, to show up and write for at least a year or two, but that's a small amount of money compared to the, the amount they've raised. So it can't be the main I don't know. price point. I, again, I, I think this is not an issue exclusive to Substack. I think that, Many a startup over the past year and a half or so 
or last year rather, raised a lot more money than they maybe needed to. And then they had a lot of expectations that they had to try to meet and are struggling to do so. And and now we're seeing a lot of layoffs as a result, things like that. So I've always been most impressed by a lean and mean mentality, to be honest. When I interview startups and they tell me, you know, they've only got a couple of dozen employees, you know, they chose not to raise a whole lot of VC money. I'm actually impressed because, you know, if you can operate in a capital efficient manner, grow your company still and do it without like spending like crazy, to me, that's that's a lot more impressive, honestly, than being able saying you, you know, you raise tens of millions of dollars and then you're still struggling to grow. Yeah. I, I want to throw a positive blanket on the end of the story before we move on. And it, it's as follows. My job, aside from talking with my friends, which is somehow part of work, is writing. That's really the kind of the, the core of it. And I love it. And I wouldn't, I don't want to do anything else. And the fact that Substack has shown that, you know, 9 million in revenue implies 90 million in platform spend during uh, 2021, it's going up. It's going to be, you know, well over 100 million, presumably this year. It goes to show that there is a, a, a large market for the value of words. And so I think Substack has really shown that that's the case. And I think it nails their initial pitch. I'm just a little perplexed by their venture capital story. So I, I don't want to sound dismissive of the business or the idea. It's just trying to suss out where they go now is the question. But I'll just say, as a writer, I use it. So, you know, what kind of, that's, that's my hoped attempt at fairness. I, yeah, guess. I mean, anything that's helping promote writers and exposing them to a broader audience, I'm like generally in support of, but yeah, I agreed with yeah. all that you said. All right. Now, Natasha, as the resident <laughs> defender of all things Buckeye, <laughs> yes. as the Ohio mascot on the team, as the Midwest Maven, <laughs> Just going for alliteration thank for the you, sake of it. You. Why are we talking about Columbus today? <laughs> well, because of graders and Skyline Chili, clearly. But if you don't get the reference, you may. After tuning into our city spotlight, we had one this week all about the Midwest tech hub. And it was really fun to read and hear what people had to say because VCs have put over $3 billion into the city over the past 20 years, particularly healthcare and insure tech. And unlike Austin, Marianne, Columbus, Ohio feels like a lesser known startup scene. So it's always fun to spotlight those areas. I mean, you know, I've always been a, a fan of underserved markets. I grew up in North Carolina and we've got the Research Triangle Park there that's kind of booming. I live in Austin, which up until recently was sort of seen like an underdog in the tech world. So I, I love it when smaller markets get attention. I think Christine Hall did a, an amazing job writing about Columbus and why it's an emerging tech scene. I was fascinated by the different things going on there. I think one important thing to know is there's a lot of insure tech happening in the city and maybe people didn't yeah. realize that. Where is Root based? It's there. It's there. That's what I thought. I was remembering that there was one of the major insurtechs that went public. Now, Roots struggled post-IPO, yeah. but all of them have. So it's not really a knock against Columbus. But I mean, it goes to show that you can build very modern high-tech companies in Columbus. Yeah, and I've written about another insurtech there called Branch that offers home and auto insurance. It's a carrier, actually, that's raised a mm. bunch of money. And so I think that's one area that's growing a lot there. And I don't know, these markets, it's interesting. They It costs less to live there. Technically, you would think it would cost less to hire there. We, I was joking with Grace, our producer, before the show, because here in Austin, there are even billboards referencing things like, what is so great about living? What is it? What's so great about all this sunshine if you have to be trapped indoors all day? I think a knock at Austin, I guess, compared to Ohio. I don't know if it was the heat or lower cost of living. Yeah, yeah, please, because I, I, I jumbled that, that all Marianne. up. No, no. Okay. <laughs> Garbled, no, no, jumbled. You did, you, you I just did made great. a new uh, word. <laughs> don't worry. I said command Z, command V earlier. Equity. We command love language. C, command <laughs> <D>. so <laughs> this is, this is, 
Um, the issue with Austin is that you think by looking at the, uh, the prevalence and, and frequency, which mm. you have beautiful days is going to lead to a life of outdoor freedom and fun. And then you discover <laughs> once you visit there that being outside in Austin yeah. is punishment because it's so hot and it's, it's gorgeous and the food is good. And I love the people I attended a small music festival there once and love it but it's just too hot. And so you end up kind of like racing indoors to stand in the AC. And if you want to be cold, you can just live in yeah. where it's yeah. cold all the time. I took it as a so dig at the weather as well. But, but, you know, I just thought that was interesting to see a billboard here in Austin. Like, I don't know who paid for that. I guess somebody in Ohio. <laughs> That's a know. great question, Marianne. Like who, who is like, this is the good use of my resources right now. Right. I mean, I'm, I, for one, am kind of excited and maybe nostalgic to see geography be a thing again. Because I feel like the conversation was so like anyone can be anywhere. And I always ask people, where are you usually based these days? Because there's no point trying to pin people down to certain locations. But right. these city spotlights and billboards, I guess, are very much like reminding me of pre-2020 vibes. And I'm not against it. Feels good. Yeah, yeah but Intel yeah. is also building some factories right outside of Columbus too, right? Like some chip factories. And they're going to hire... I think they said 3,000 construction workers in the short term, but like well over 1,000 employees in the long term with an average salary of around $135,000, which is huge for a, a city like that. I, I, I just want to say that I'm not the one who said, quote, city like that on the show. <laughs> that was Marianne. That was Texas talking down she to, to Ohio. punch back real quick. I support it. Yeah, but it's the classic Marianne style that you don't realize she's dissed you until like two sentences later. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh my that God. polite sounding phrase was me. <laughs> I want to say though, like I went to college in Chicago and I got to be there when the Chicago tech scene was a maturing, you know, like Groupon happened when I was there and really blew up and then Sprout Social. And now Chicago has a plethora of technology companies that we talk about, M1 Finance and so forth. And Austin at that time was this little up and coming scene, now an established base with every major tech company with an office and VCs and et cetera. And now we're talking about Columbus. And so it, it does seem to be an increasingly wide number of cities that have a particular hub. And in the case of Columbus, not just insure tech, it's also just kind of health tech mm -hmm. in general. And I think the stories that we wrote about it mentioned a concentration yeah. of talent that's recycling. So they found a niche that they can dominate in or, or lead in. And so Columbus, Ohio may not become the hub of enterprise SaaS, but it may become the health tech and insure tech hub that people in the know know about. And so shout out to Ohio. Yes, Ohio we State, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah like State. a bunch of talent coming out of there that I think a lot of companies are drawn to. To be, to represent yeah. the bear side of Columbus, Ohio, as I am a reporter, and I will do that, is I think concentration can be both a positive and a negative. So in 2021, investment doubled in Columbus, but half of that money went to only two companies, Olive and Path Robotics. So I do think like heading into a downturn or being in one right now, depending on where you land on your optimism today, that's interesting that it's only those two companies. And we also saw Root as you kind of alluded to, Root has had layoffs and they laid off 330 people. And so I think the talent specifically may either stay at their jobs. If you look at those two recently venture-backed companies, Olive and Path, or in Root's case, I wonder what those newly layoff people are going to do. Because in tech and more, I guess, advanced startup ecosystems, there's VC fellowships for you. There's so many startups hiring and disagreeing with the pullback. And so I wonder if you're located in a place like Columbus, what that means. That's a good point. Yes. And if you have a sector that leads your city and then there is a slowdown that impacts that sector, your city will be slowed down. But that's just the, the risk of living yeah. in smaller areas. I mean, the, the counter argument is, is move to San Francisco or Manhattan. And I've lived in one of those two places. It was lovely, but it made me feel poor. Yeah. So many companies so. hiring remotely now too, right? So 
You're yeah. not as, yeah. as limited as you might have once yeah. been. Actually, now that you say that, Marianne, all my points about like, you know, geographic specificity feel a little <laughs> silly. Because I'm thinking in a pre-COVID mindset, yeah, frankly. I mean, huh. a lot of my friends are going in. Yeah. So I don't know. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of my friends are going in twice to three times a week now. I think we're... What? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I cannot relate. So... I think it's like, I mean, I don't know. Everyone disagrees on if she go in or not, but it's definitely a thing. Mm, yeah. And I would also like to just add that Austin's seeing a slowdown, right? And people moving here. So I feel like it too was a victim of this pandemic boom that's kind of dropping off right now. Yeah. It turns out the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the climate divide. <laughs> Miami has also kind of been quiet, right? Have you guys seen Miami oh. tweets in a while? I just... Nope. Yeah. Okay. That's... Uh, no, point. I have actually, because uh-huh. Miami's coin, Miami coin, was a flop. Ooh, I did see tweets about that. Okay, shocker. You're so okay. right. But here's an inside tip: Providence coin blowing up. <laughs> it's going quote to the moon. Uh, no, I'm kidding. We have to stop, but I, I do have a, a PSA for everyone before we go, which is that Equity, this fine show that comes out three times a week to podcast platforms everywhere, is off next week. We will instead be replaying a couple of uh, greatest hits on Wednesday <laughs> and Friday. But the three of us and the fine production crew that helps keep the show on the road, Grace, Maggie, and Kel, we're going to be sitting back and breathing because it has been a really fun half year. But I think it's fair to say we're exhausted. Yeah, oh my God. Just a little bit. <laughs> yes. So with that, we're going to close up the show. Marianne, Natasha, as always, an absolute treat. And I look forward to returning as recharged as a brand new nine volt battery in about a week's time. So I'll see you guys then. Yes. Bye. Bye. Bye.